Peter? Hi, Carl. How are you? I'm doing fine. Podcast. Thank you very much. Um, a lot of people I uh, know, of course, that you're the co-editor of the Plast Letters. But I thought we'd start with your talking a bit about how you got interested in Plath and why she continues to interest you. Okay. Um, it's kind of a sad story, but I was in college uh, and I got dumped by my first love. And as uh, part of the healing process, I decided to take a course in poetry. It was just an introductory course. And um, we started uh, with the you know, oldest writers that you can imagine and worked our way up through the 19th and into the 20th century. And when we got to uh, Plath, uh, I read, I remember reading Daddy and Lady Lazarus, but it was in, in a couple of other poems of hers in that anthology that we used. But when specifically Lady Lazarus really uh, spoke to me and the message that I got from it was that uh, I will rise up again. I will get over this girl and I will, I will be fine. And um, so I, I remember I just, I skipped classes for a couple of days and just read the poem over and over again. And I went to ask my professor about Plath uh, the next time we, I saw him. And he actually dissuaded me from, he tried to dissuade me from reading Plath or reading about Plath. He didn't like her and he didn't encourage people to read her. Do you know why he didn't like her? I don't know why. Um, all I knew was that at that point in time, I was, I was not satisfied with that response. And uh, a friend of mine knew a lot about Plath and he and I went to the library and uh, we found Plath's books and I just remember, you know, checking out the collected poems and maybe the bell jar, maybe a biography. And um, what, what year was that? Um, it was the fall of 1994. 94. Do you know which biography? Um, I'm pretty sure it was Rough Magic. I know that that year yeah. for Christmas, for Christmas that year, I got a copy of the bell jar and a copy of the collected poems and a copy of Rough Magic. Um, so th they must have made such an impression on me that I, I wanted to own them. And so that was December of, you know, by that point it was December of 94, early 95. And um, I was absolutely hooked. And so from there, um, what did you do about being hooked? Uh, I continued to try to get the books that were available. I remember getting the little yellow paperback of the journals and I got letters home. I, I read both of those with, with a big appetite. Um, I remember being really disappointed with letters home and I never read it sort of in full again. I, I would go to specific letters if I was reading or looking something up, but on, on, on the whole, that, that book was just not good. And uh, another a creative writing professor that I had uh, the next year when she found out that I was into Plath, 
she said, oh, well, you know, everybody goes through the plath phase. And I'm still in my, I'm still in the plath phase. <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering how much longer it's going to last because it's going yeah. on, 20, it's 26 years now. Yeah, my, um, mine has, has been going on since 1972. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a long time. Yeah. That's, that, that's respectable. You're almost at your 50th anniversary of Plath. Wow. That's right. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. You got, you got to publish another book by that time. Yeah. Maybe we'll call this the 50th anniversary podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting what you say about Lady Lazarus. Mm-hmm. What I find so, um, when I first taught Plath, I think the first poems I taught were Metaphors and Mirror. Mm-hmm. And what struck me, it wasn't a personal connection to begin with, but it was just the sheer energy of her work. Yeah. And although I didn't know you then, uh, and I can see how people don't associate Plath with um, really the idea of rebirth. Uh, and yet it's there in her work, to be sure. Oh, for sure, yeah. And I think that that kind of, um, well, people do feel a, a personal connection with her for a whole variety of reasons. You've mentioned one. Obviously, part of it has to do with the fact that she wrote journals. Not every mm-hmm. writer discloses himself or herself in that way. Um, and uh, in her case in particular, I think... Um, uh, the writer's life, not just what the writer wrote, but the writer's life became important to her. I mean, after all, she was contacting various kinds of writers, whether they were writers for slick magazines or uh, great novelists like Elizabeth Bowen. She seemed particularly concerned with those those aspects of the literary life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she, and, yeah. And, and for you... Um, was there any particular reason why you turned to biographies of her? Um, I, I, I'm not the, I'm not the brightest person in the world, and I'm not very good at doing things like literary criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and these are weaknesses that I, I have been aware of since the very beginning. I was, I was not a good English major, um, and. So while I liked Plath's work and I, I think I can appreciate Plath's work, I found in reading Rough Magic and Linda Wagner Martin's biography um, and, and, so, and some of the others, and Bitter Fame even, um, at the time that, that Plath's life was just fascinating. Yes. And um, I'll never understand the suicide part of it as to you know, why she did it, that, that's, that, you know, that's none of my business, but just everything that led up to it was, she just led a remarkable life. And so I, by the late nineties, um, I had just decided that I was going to try to learn everything that I could about her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I get, I get a great sense of reward by reading Plath's poems and stories and everything in conjunction with her journals and her letters and, and with the biographical aspects. I, mm-hmm. I, 
I love it. And I love piecing them together. I love seeing how she would take an event and transform it into art. I don't think everybody can do that. Um, and she certainly did it very well. Well, I think that's one great reason for certainly looking at, at, um, at the biographies, because all of us, all of class biographers, in a sense, are trying to figure out the origins of that work, you know, how, mm -hmm. what, how you can, of course, study drafts of her poems. Um, I guess I find um, her way of dealing, in a sense, with um, her surroundings so interesting. Uh, you mm -hmm. seem to be attuned and you know, in, there's so much there in Platt for very many different kinds of readers. Um, right. People may not, you know, they, they may not think of her, for instance. Well, let me put it this way. Often the stereotype of Celia Platt, besides she's suicidal, is that she's very self-absorbed. And yet when you read, say, uh, The Bell Jar, um, you know, her awareness of Cold War politics, of the execution of the Rosenbergs. Obviously, um, there, there's so much more there in Platt. I, you know, I just read and reviewed Heather Clark's fine new biography of Sylvia Platt, and there's just a sentence that, and I, I never quite put it that way in my own writing about Sylvia Platt, that just really struck me when Heather said that, um, the Bell Jar is a protest novel. Mm -hmm. When you think about that, about how the character in the uh, novel is taking a very sharp, sometimes even a, a cervic look at her culture, that's yeah. what's, in a sense, transforming about the book. It's, it's not, to me, it's not an exercise in self-absorption at all. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, and I, it's a, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and it, it, it's not, you know, it's, it's all over her poetry uh, as well. And it's all over her letters and her journals. And, um, you know, that, that, that sense of, of not being satisfied with the way things were and trying to affect change. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's so that when someone calls her a confessional poet, that's kind of misleading because yeah. you, you certainly find elements of her personal experience in the poetry, or you could say, well, it's, it's uh, the poetry comes out of certain events, but by the time you finish with the poem, it cer certainly isn't any kind of one-to-one -one relationship with her life at all, actually. No, exactly. She has, a, she has an ability to write personally and universally all in the same go, and I think that's why she attracts so many readers all over the world um, because the things about what she's writing um, do concern and do relate to us all. Yeah. One of my favorite poems is, is Cut, which, mm -hmm. which does originate in her cutting her thumb, almost cutting it off, and it gets infected later and so on. But you read that poem and it moves from that, that personal experience to you know, you're really talking about war, the American Revolution. I mean, just a whole cascading right. uh, collection of subjects uh, coming right. to the poem. And again, with such energy. Right. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, though, about, you know, one of the ways I heard about you is, you know, is, is online. All the things yeah. you were doing online. Tell us how that started. Okay, so... 
in, um, I first really started using the internet in 1997. And um, one of the first things I did after I Googled uh, information about the Spice Girls was um, I Googled Sylvia Plath. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there was one, one website run by a German woman named Anya Beckman, and I thought it was pretty good, but it didn't really have what I wanted. And what I wanted was to see the places that she lived in or that she wrote about, uh, and in particular to see them in color. Because, you know, if there are images and biographies, especially back then, they were all in black and white and the, the quality was questionable at best. So in May of 1998, uh, with the help of a man named Jack Folsom, who lived in Vermont, um, I went on a trip to Massachusetts and uh, visited Smith College for the first time, visited Boston for the first time, and you know was taking pictures of her houses, her high school, junior high school, all that sort of stuff. The buildings that she lived in at Smith, um, and a friend of mine helped me scan them and I just started a website for them uh, because I, you know, I just, I guess I kind of thought if I'm interested in this, maybe somebody else is out there too. And so that's kind of how the website started and it went through a couple of iterations, a couple of different designs um, until I finally, you know, bought the domain sylviaplot.info um, as, and it's something I maintain now, it's updated a couple of times a month at, at least. And it's brought me great joy to, to put everything that I've put on there. Um, because I know people all over the world are looking at it and that's my motivation for kind of keeping it going. One of the things that, uh, you do, um, that I find so valuable is when you say you're researching a biographical subject's life and you, uh, for instance, you, if I'm looking for or was looking for accounts of how class um, you know, suicide attempt in 1953 was, was covered by the newspapers, oh, I might be drawing on 10 or 15 or 20 accounts, whatever, uh, and I feel I have enough material to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. You look for every last single newspaper article you can possibly find. Yeah, it's maybe it's pathetic. Um, it might I, it might be called obsessive, but but uh, it, it's it's very interesting because it it tells its own story, so to speak. Yeah, and I'm I'm fascinated by that um, by our first suicide attempt, and yeah, I, the articles they all basically say the same thing because it was picked up by the AP or the UP or whatever. Um, but I, I, I have found it just infinitely amazing how far and wide the news of her disappearance went. Um, you expect it all over Massachusetts and it's, you know, that that's probably the heaviest, uh, representation in, in the bibliography that I'm maintaining, but to find articles, you know, in the Los Angeles paper in Chicago and Florida and Texas, and even Canada. That's remarkable, um, yeah. It is truly astounding. And then to consider, you know, in 1963, when she does kill herself, 
how few articles there are about yeah. her death. Yeah. Um, and, and they're kind of obscured in a way because many of them were, were published under her married name. Uh, so they're kind of hidden. Um, you know, just a couple in the Boston papers, one in Wellesley, uh, and then, but the majority of them appeared alongside posthumous publications. Um, so it, you know, that it's, it's just, it's curious to me. Yes, uh, yeah. But maybe, you know, maybe there, they, there was some level of embarrassment or being ashamed by the suicide, uh, yes. which is understandable. I don't want to sound unsympathetic. Um, but back to the first suicide attempt, I just find it's, mm -hmm. it's a very interesting thing. Um, and it's the subject of the bell jar. And I love that novel more than anything. Um, so I, I find that that, you know, they're, they're kind of connected, my interest in the novel and then my interest in the suicide attempt. Oh, know. sure. So how do you get from that kind of interesting class to editing your letters? How does that come off? Um, that was just good timing, maybe. I don't, I'm not sure. I, so back in 2008, um, I was trying to sort of, I was bored with Letters Home, you know, like I said, I only read it the one time. And I had been reading the letters in the archives that she wrote to friends, like at Smith College, and I've been to Indiana a few times and read through the correspondence there. And I decided I was gonna start transcribing some of the letters that I had, because um, it would help having the transcriptions on my computer, because I could just search for a word or something that I might be interested in, in, in looking at. Um, and I was, I was interested in her business correspondence. So I asked my friend Gail Crowther to go to the BBC Written Archives because they wouldn't make copies. And she went and she transcribed them and she sent them to me. And, and I thought that, that this is a different side of Sylvia Plath. Yes. Um, I got copies of the letters that she wrote to London Magazine and to The New Yorker as well. And it kind of was like this little niche of... Um, of letters that, that really told a fascinating story. Um, at the same time as I was doing this, and unknown to me, Karen Kukiel uh, was teaching a documentary editing class at Smith College where students were transcribing the Plath letters held there. So at one point she asked me to come and both take the class and help teach it. So, um, I went and I spent a week there with her and her students. I transcribed some letters and, you know, talked about Plath to the students and, um, you know, just carried along with my little side project of transcribing what I had in my, in, in photocopies of in my house. And then in October of 2012 at the Sylvia Plath Symposium at Indiana University, Karen showed me a, that, she got a contract to not only edit class letters, but also to do a new poems. Mm. And she asked me if I would be, you know, up for being like the lead transcriber on the letters project. And I said, sure. Mm -hmm. um, I should backtrack and say that David Trinidad, the poet David Trinidad and I had sent a proposal to Faber uh, a year or two before that asking to edit class letters, but we never heard anything. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I did talk to David about Karen's offer before accepting it, just because I wanted to make sure he was fine with it. Sure. Um, and he was, and so I just joined the project. And uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I'm a bully or not, but I ended up just taking it, taking it over. Mm. Um, and I just I transcribed everything that wasn't at Smith. Um, I annotated everything. Um, Karen was helpful with some of the Smith annotations, Smith related things um and we just you know we, we assembled the book over the course of uh i guess four or five years of uh what for me was non-stop work i mean morning noon and night during during my lunch breaks at work on the train rides to and from work weekends um vacations just non-stop work it's a mammoth project how many letters um there were, by the time we finished uh, doing the paperback editions uh, for Faber, there were a little over 1,400 letters. Mm. Um, I have 17 new letters. Um, they're transcribed and annotated, but I'm just going to hold on to them for now until we figure out you know, how we'll incorporate them. Um, but that's not all. You know, I, um, there were hundreds and hundreds, if not more than a thousand letters that Plath wrote to people that we don't have, you know, all the letters that she wrote to Richard Norton, all the letters right. that she wrote to Eddie Cohen, Richard Sassoon, um, and, as well as other friends, as other, uh, other business contacts, maybe even fans. Um, you know, there, there are just hundreds of letters that we don't have. And I, I've come up with that number because I, I tracked references to letters that she wrote as part of this project. But then, you know, we have a lot of the letters that Richard Norton and Eddie Cohen and Richard Sassoon wrote to Plath. And I, I look at it as there being kind of like a one-to-one. -one. So for every letter Plath received from these people, she probably wrote one back. Yes. Um, so that's how I, that's how I've just kind of arbitrarily come up with a number, you know, because it, there, there are hundreds of these letters that, that are at Indiana University that she received. Um, and then, you know, nothing to show for them from, you know, on, from her to them. Right. So probably at least some of these letters may yet turn up someday. Oh, that's the, that's the hope. I mean, it's, you know, you hope for those missing journals, you hope for the missing novel. And I would even welcome a, a, a cache of 400 letters that we could slip into volume one that would even mean re-indexing everything. It's, yeah. it's, it's a torturous activity, but I would gladly do it. How did uh, you, are, some of the letters that you have in there are, are in private hands, right? They're not all in, in archives. Right. How did you get those? Um, by writing letters to people. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes I wrote I wrote dozens of letters to people, and a lot of them a lot of them were not responded to. Um, but we did end up getting a few letters that um, were in private hands, and you know it it was very generous to those people to share them. Yes. Now, besides whatever we have in terms of missing letters, a lot of people might not know that there's quite a bit that Plath wrote that's not been published. Yes. Yeah. There, I mean, and 
you know, for the letters in class journals, you know, it's, it's, it's a known universe. It's, it's, you know, you know, I mean, her early diaries are not published yet and I'm not sure they ever will be, mm-hmm. but um, you know, in terms, so in the, in 2000, we get the journals in 2004, we get the restored aerial 2017 and 18, we get, you know, more or less collected complete letters. Um, but this is all sort of, with the exception of Ariel, it's all it's all autobiographical writing. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know when we're going to start getting complete editions of her poems and her prose. Mm-hmm. Um, their collected poems prints a little over two hundred poems, but I think I think she wrote about six hundred poems. So that's only a third of her poetry that's available to yes. the mass market. And the, the same goes for her prose. You know, Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams came out in 1977 and 79. And um, it's a hybrid of, of short stories and nonfiction pieces and journals. Well, the journals have been published, so who cares about them? Um, but the, the short stories and the nonfiction writing and even her book reviews, um, that's, that's another situation where a fraction of what she wrote is, is generally available. And yes. so it's my, it's my hope that maybe in the next five or 10 years sooner would be nicer um, that we start getting the creative writing, um, fuller editions of those, those works that, that Plath is known for, mm-hmm. um, you know, to try to turn the tide away from, and a lot of people don't like the autobiographical aspect of the journal of the letters that they question the authenticity or the truthfulness of it. And that's fine for them to do that. But, um, you know, her reputation is based on her creative writing. And I would think that there would be an interest to bring out complete editions of those as well. Um, fingers crossed. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite an impressive body of work. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, one of the problems with the original collected poems, at least from my point of view, was this dividing up of Plath, the so, so-called juvenilia, and then the mature poems. It's not that you can't right. call early poems juvenilia, but, but to separate them out in a separate category, and right. even to exclude uh, poems like Mad Girl's Love Song. Yeah, uh, just seemed strange to me and uh, a disservice to class development as a uh, as a poet. Yeah, it's and and then the the structure of the collected poems to put the juvenilia tucked away in the back is all, as if you're hiding it. Yeah, um, it just doesn't make sense that you you start with 1956, go through 1963, and then take that giant leap backwards. Um, it, it's it's it is, it's a weird layout. Um, yeah. And I have always, the Mad Girl's Love Song has always baffled me because it was published in the American edition of the Bell Jar. Mm. Um, and as well as in periodicals and limited editions and whatnot. So why exclude it? Uh, was it an oversight? Who knows? Um, yeah, I've always been curious about that particular poem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, You've already been telling us, in a sense, what we might have to look forward to in terms of other publications of Plath. We now have Heather Clark's Mammoth uh, new biography. 
which is stock full of all sorts of things, uh, including, um, for instance, uh, her, um, you know, access to Harriet Rosenstein's papers at Emory. Yeah. Uh, the curious thing about that is here we have a new biography that in part, I mean, there's lots to this new biography, but in part, it's gleaned with material that was collected, uh, what, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, the, when, I, when I first got access to the collection in, in January and February, um, I had hired somebody to take photographs of, of, all, the, of all the papers. Yes. The entire, I, have, I have photographs of everything. So I was reading through it, you know, and, and not to mention the fact that she had the, the letters to Dr. Ruth Boischer um, that we just learned about recently and that we were fortunate enough to include in the letters. Right. I mean, this is stuff that could have changed the landscape of plath biography. I mean, obviously, there, there, there are reasons and there are legitimate reasons for not publishing those letters um, ever, um, and certainly for not making them known. But the information still could have been made use of um, by Harriet Rosenstein or another biographer, um, but she didn't share, yes. and that's that's really problematic. Um, and, and so in a sense, Plath scholarship has been retarded by that selfishness for a half a century. Um, yes, there's, yeah. And so we're just now being able to assimilate that information um, and it's going to change the way that we approach Sylvia Plath and that we understand Sylvia Plath and that, that, that she's taught the way that she's taught, the way that she's talked about, and, and maybe even the way in which she's conveyed in the popular culture, which is, which is just disgusting for the most part. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's exactly right. But yeah. So, but I'm glad that Heather was able to make use of this stuff. I think her biography um, coming out when it does and being so so gargantuan, it, it's, a, it's a really good thing that it's in there. Um, she's, she's made excellent use of it. Uh, she's written with a concern and an, an intelligence that um, was missing from some of the biographies in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. Um, it, it's safe to say that the biographies since yours and Andrew Wilson's in 2013 and now Heather's, they are smarter, they're, they're more well-informed and they're, they're taking Plath way more seriously, I think. Yeah, and that, that's, that's a good place to end this podcast by saying that in a way, we're still catching up with Sylvia Plath. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, yeah, Thank definitely. You. Thank you very much, Carl. Yeah, it's a good talk, thanks a lot. All right, have a good day. You too. All right, bye-bye.